this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. Really cool interview coming your way with Matt Schmelz, who started Cloud Craze. In fact, he didn't start it. He bought it, as he will describe, and took a $2 million company and scaled it very, very quickly. What I found fascinating about this interview was how they partnered quickly with Salesforce and built out their solution on the Salesforce platform. That was both a blessing and a curse. Blessing in the sense that Salesforce knew of them and when it was time to sell to them, it was like a coronation of sorts. But it could have been a curse in that he was deeply dependent on Salesforce and had the deal unraveled it would have been very hard to resurrect. Here to tell you a wild and crazy story about his sale to Salesforce is Matt Schmelz. Matt Schmelz, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yes. You know, we just had this like five minute dialogue trying to figure out which of the billion companies you've started do we focus on. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I'm getting down to like the seventh company you've started. I'm like, when, when does this guy ever have a job? But apparently you're unemployable because you've had so many companies that you've right. started. Yeah. And, and uh, I just can't wait to draw on you, all of your expertise. Um, we kind of had this back and forth to focus in on cloud craze as a company that had some interesting twists and turns. Sure. Um, tell people what cloud craze did, if yeah. you could. So it was uh, kind of an interesting situation where uh, prior to uh, our, us acquiring cloud craze, we had been in the uh, digital services business. So we had implemented uh, Adobe and a lot of their content management uh, products. Uh, Hybris is a B2C product, and they also do a little bit of B2B work. And um, had gone through a sale of our last business to Accenture and started a, a, a group with my two other partners, uh, Chris Dalton and Paul Weinmuth, and it was called Action Partners. And the idea was, uh, as the name would say, we wanted to put a little bit of action on companies that we saw and really kind of get away from being the operators being more of the uh, you know investors and board level um, involvement. So as we, we were going through this process, uh, there was an individual in Chicago that had a services company. And on the side, he had this kind of a pet project that was a company called CloudCraze or a services entity called CloudCraze. We hadn't really done a lot of work with Salesforce, but it was a B2B um, solution that was written on the Salesforce platform. So they've got all these different, uh, I, I think it's somewhere in the three or 4,000 apps that if you, if you buy Salesforce, have it in your environment, these other applications that you can plug in for a whole variety of different things that your business may need, one of them being B2B. And as we were looking at it, um, if he had had it for five or six years, was doing just under $2 million in ARR, and he just didn't have the resources to put towards it. And uh, we were able to come in and buy that entity from Bill over a probably 12 to 14 month um, extended uh, acquisition process. And he kind of kept shopping it around and then we were able to finally acquire it. So basically, if you think about the B2B space at that time, one of their biggest clients was Coca-Cola. And what they were trying to do is go through a process of instead of three people showing up at a retail store, they wanted to get that down to two. And what they were going to eliminate is that salesperson that would come in. So you'd still have the delivery person. 
still have the inventory person, but when someone needed uh, in a bodega in South America or at a retail outlet here in Chicago, um, that person actually would have an app that they could go right on their phone and order real time those, uh, the different products that they needed from Coca-Cola and have them put on the truck and deliver the next day, which was different than either faxing or calling in and waiting for customer service. So that's just probably the best and clearest example it's of what of, the platform is. It's kind of like the, the, the unsexy plumbing between companies like company A and company B yep. wants to do business together. Yep. And there's all the stuff that needs to go back and forth between them. Yep. And there's, a, and probably one of the, uh, an example at a much larger scale is GE water was one of our customers. And they, if you're running a processing plant, there's pro, there's products within that that are GE parts that over time will wear out. And those parts can be a hundred thousand dollars. So for that person, when it breaks down, they would have to call a rep, get the rep on the phone. They know exactly what the part is, you know, go through that whole process, which can take two to three days. Meanwhile, they're down where with our application literally can pull it up, hit, you know, rebuy the exact same product that I had before price has already been negotiated because we're under contract and that thing can be, you know, set to deliver the next day. So there's different applications for it. And you're right. None of them are kind of that, you know, the sexy interface that you would see with, uh, you know, a, a traditional retail outlet. If you go to a Levi's or a Nordstrom's or something like that, um, it's that more kind of behind the scenes. And in the time we're in now with COVID, you know, that digital interface, you know, it went from, you know, a, a nice to have to a ton of value to be built in. The ROI was an easy uh, formula to put together, but with where we are today, um, you know, I think it's a lifesaver for Salesforce. And I know they're seeing a lot of traction out of the, the product that we were able to sell to them. That's awesome. So let's just get into the acquisition. So you acquired $2 million of ARR. How did you guys think about, about valuing Bill's company? Because uh, it was a couple million bucks in ARR. Usually these companies are multiple of revenue, aren't they? Right. So the, the interesting thing with him, again, I would almost look at it. He was running it like a hobby as opposed to his business was the services business. And when people had availability, they would go work on this product. So he didn't really run it in the traditional way. He had, I think he had gone down the process a couple of different times. It was someone that one of my partners had worked with in the past. We had that kind of personal relationship. We came to an agreement and then he shopped it around for a, about 12 months. I think as people got into due diligence, they just didn't see necessarily uh, the value that he was looking for. And I think he was kind of at the end of his path. And we came back around. Initially, we were going to acquire it for 30%. And we said, listen, if we're going to do this deal, we want to buy it 100%. And so we were able to come to um, a very fair market value in that he just wasn't, uh, didn't have the dedicated time and resources that it was needed to be able to kind of take it to the next level. So I think he was kind of stuck. He didn't have the resources wasn't able to find it. So it wasn't your traditional, you know, uh, VC type of evaluation that we were going through. Um, so kind of unique circumstances there, uh, especially for the value that we were able to get out of it later. And the clients that he had already on the platform, um, you know, made it very interesting for us. So how would you think about, and I, I appreciate there may be sensitivities around actually sharing the actual value that you paid for it, but, yeah. but if you think more, uh, in, in, in the kind of theoretical world, yeah. if you were to look at a company with a couple million dollars of ARR, I'm assuming the business was not growing very quickly. No. Is that it fair meant, to say sort of flat? Yeah. He had been adding, you know, he, he was, he was uh, pricing it, you know, just to get customer logos. He wasn't pricing it the right way. You know, we, we basically came in and said, you know, the, the you know, he had $25,000 clients. We're like, when we bought it, we're like 125 to 250 as a minimum. And then we'll take it, scale it from there. So he just had gone through a process of it was exciting to get logos and be able to show value and not necessarily, you know, look at it like a traditional software company where it was coming out of the valley that had funding, those types of things. Uh, you know, I just think it was, it was a very unique situation that we ran into. So what would you think a fair price for a couple million dollar ARR business be, would be uh, in, a, in a flat sort of revenue environment um, like, are you multiple, like what, what kind of multiple of you, the revenue or EBITDA would you think is yeah. fair or range? What I think, you know, if it was a flat, it depends on the space that it's in, but I mean, gosh, you see stuff now. You see, I mean, Salesforce is buying stuff for 24 times. I mean, if, if he could have pulled himself together and added a couple more million in ARR and kind of ran it, you know, with some due diligence, I, I think he could have, I, I mean, I think you could have gotten to five. I mean, we're looking at stuff quite often and that, that five to 10 range, 
isn't out of the question. And then you'll see stuff that you can get value on where the person, you know, is kind of at their, you know, they're like, Hey, I'm going to run out of money at some point here. And I need to do a transaction in order to be able to, you know, kind of move this thing forward. And he retained a lot of equity, which turned out phenomenally for him. So it wasn't as though, you know, he kind of handed the car keys over and walked away. I mean, he was a partner with us through the adventure and, um, you know, he, he reaped huge benefits from it. That's fantastic. And when you say five to 10, you're referring to times top line revenue. ARR, exactly. essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Annual recurring revenue for those following along with the acronym. So you buy this company. Um, what did you do to add value? What were the things you do to, did to kind of drive up the value as much as you could? Well, and I, the analogy we used is it was like driving a car at 55 miles an hour and then having to change the tires and redo the engine and all that stuff. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was in more dire straits than I think we had any appreciation for. There was really no go-to-market strategy. There was no sales organization. There was no uh, customer care organization. Um, you, you know, it, it was just the, the, the sprint teams were insufficient for what we needed to do. What do you mean so by sprint teams? Not familiar with that. The, the engineering groups that would mm. come out with new solutions, and they're usually pods of like three to maybe five individuals where they're given a set of requirements and it's their job to then execute that sprint and get it, you know, write the code, test it, in, integrate it, launch it, and then on to the next one. And they just didn't have sufficient engineering behind the product to really get it. Because when we came in, the expectation was, oh, we can add more features to it where we basically spent the first 12 to 18 months doing nothing but shoring up and making sure there were no issues with what they had because they really didn't have the engineering power to get that, um, you know, with what he had had originally. And we just were fortunate that, you know, working in a services company with about a thousand employees, you know, we had a ton of people that had that commerce background. And without that, it's, it's almost like an ERP person going to work on a content management initiative, or it's like, you know, within technology, things get very niche. And we just happen to have, you know, one of the hardest areas to find people, which is in the commerce environment. We just had a ton, ton of engineering talent that we were able to draw on um, to be able to, you know, kind of shore up what he had there. So, Oh, it, was, it, was, it was like the house trap, you know, like the roof's leaking, you know, the plumbing's not working. I mean, it was everything. But, um, and then we just said, hey, we're jumping in full time. I mean, we're, we're, we jumped in initially. That wasn't the thought. We thought, hey, you've got a team in place here. But it, it took up two or three days to be like, you know, we're, we're in this thing uh, all the way. How did you stick handle that with Bill, the founder? Because uh, a lot of founders you know, it can, that can be a bit, a bit dicey. What, what, it, what was that like? You know, he, we did a, when the, the, the first time we were introduced to the organization, they were having an all hands company meeting. Traditionally it was the services company and the software company. We showed up at that meeting and they had an all hands meeting uh, of the integrated group. And then in the afternoon they broke off and the folks that were going to go over to the cloud craze we're on that side and we had an opportunity to introduce ourselves, walk through what our plans were and how we were going to execute against that. And I think, you know, for a group of guys that had built companies from nothing to, um, you know, publicly traded to acquire by Accenture, we just had a ton of background that he just hadn't had that experience. And I think everyone around it had a sense of relief. And I think he knew in the lead follower, get out of the way, he was followed to get out of the way. Like these guys are, you know, coming at this like a freight train. So just, uh, he quickly within a couple of meetings was like, you guys know what you're doing. And, you know, I'm going to hold on to your coattails and run through this thing. Because he retained some equity. So it was in he his did. best interest to have exactly. you guys jump right you know, in. He, he got a, the, his deal was a component cash and then a component equity. So we were all in it together. Like I didn't want to write a check and have him walk away. I wanted it where you're going to stay with the organization and you're going to sleep at night. Like I'm sleeping at night because either things are going well or things aren't going well. And I think that was the right way to do it. Got it. So back to the question around how you guys added value. I'd be, you know, people listening are really looking for kind of concrete, tactical, you know, actionable stuff they can do right away. So in your case, you inherit this business. Like, it, can you think of one or two steps you took, which in retrospect really did move the needle on the value of your company? Yeah, we, and we, as in my past businesses in an acuity group, when we went through the sale at, um, with Accenture, we had 30 inside salespeople and we had 13 offices, two in Canada, the rest domestically across the country. So we had a, you know, I think we kind of had one of the most robust uh, sales engines in the industry. 
and it was a differentiator for us in hard times and in getting webinars and anything you needed to do. We had a crew of people that would jump on the, on the phone and, and just go crazy with setting up meetings. So I think first and foremost was he needed a go-to-market strategy. And that was not only the outside sales individuals, but it was also getting those people meetings in a, you know, when you say cloud craze, even today, that it was such a, I, you know, I got IBM calling me, I got Oracle calling me, I got, you know, Salesforce calling me like, well, who are you guys? So you had to get over that hump of how am I going to set meetings up? Because I think a lot of people look at it as he had historically. And I think a lot of people and entrepreneurs in general, it's one individual that is a alpha salesperson. And it's hard for them to grow beyond that where we had set up a platform for people to be successful in our organization, regardless of what their sales capabilities were, because we were able to drive a system that could set meetings and make put people in a position to be successful. So I think that go-to-market strategy was first and foremost, because if you're not building pipeline, I don't care what else you do, it's not going to work. So I think so that was- For some people don't know that, that, that acronym for some people may be a bit uh, unfamiliar. So when you say go-to-market strategy, what does that mean exactly? I mean, it's just your overall strategy for how you're going to take your product, market it to and or sell it to the marketplace and what mechanisms and tactics and strategies are you going to employ deploy to make that happen. And, you know, there's anything from, you know, getting a PR firm involved, knowing where all the conferences are, making the, you know, making the commitment. Cause a lot of these are big spend when you're the software vendor, cause you're playing in a huge field with, you know, people that can write a hundred thousand dollar check to go to a conference. Well, you know, we know these conferences, we know the people, you know, we knew to go to, who to talk to at Forrester. We knew the people that talked to at uh, Gartner you know, we had all that stuff kind of in our background on how to really to push this product out as quickly as possible. That if you weren't someone that had been in the industry for the majority, you know, basically my, our, the collectively between myself and my two partners, our entire career had been in tech, it would have been tough to do that, but we had the confidence to really push. And I think the last piece, and it, you know, being, having a product that's built on a platform versus something that's built natively or on Azure or, you know, an IBM platform or something like that. Salesforce has a very defined community. And that was the other thing that we did is we spent uh, a fair amount. So if you weren't generating, so they have these 3000 apps, as I was mentioning earlier, within that, they have a group of 25 that they kind of, that's their premier group. Those are the ones that they focus on. And it takes you up to a size of revenue. So a certain amount of ARR, which I think is like 15 to 20 million, then you're noticed by them. But if not, you can buy in which isn't an insignificant check right out of the gate. We did that. We bought in and we were able to get uh, interfaces with the executive team and get on their radar screen. And really it was, I think those early meetings that got us noticed by their venture capital arm and them to make an investment when we were raising money. And then us to be able to go back multiple times when we were in San Francisco and sit in front of the guys that are running, you know, the divisions and say, Oh yeah, I, I remember where you guys were while wow, you've really matured. Holy cow. You got a lot more, right? So it was just understanding that kind of systematic approach that you need to take to get in front of what we thought ultimately would be our acquirer. Okay. So you knew this very early on that you thought a Salesforce was going to acquire you. <laughs> well, it, I mean, that was the kind of the hypothesis going into it that we're built on the platform that would seem appropriate. That wasn't way, you know, there are, a, a lot of the big companies uh, you know, you look at Aviva that's publicly traded. You look at some of these other organizations that are publicly traded that are on the platform. I think what Salesforce looks at that as, boy, we, if you get too big too fast and we don't acquire you, then you're off and you're on your own. And now it's a competition of, you know, what direction are you going to go where if I could have retained all of that value and seen that grow underneath the Salesforce, you know, uh, ticker symbol, that would have been better for us. So there's always this little bit of a game as, as we got to know Salesforce in that if you're growing too fast, they're going to want to take you out right away, or they're going to bring in a competition, or they're going to let you just go off and, you know, and not really care. So we had to come up with this. I mean, uh, one of my partners, Chris Dalton, I mean, he, that was something that he forged immediately is just getting that relationship within Salesforce and us being able to kind of, you know, quickly get in and, and build that rapport. And, and with the money we spent, they give you like a liaison between us and the, the, um, them as an organization, which, you know, any IBM or any of these big organizations, you know, it's a complex uh, set of influencers and who's actually going to pull the trigger and, you know, who's, who, you know, all the different things that go on behind the scenes. That was a big part of what we, you know, jumped on. on so early. let me see if I understand. So 
I, I'm not really a techie guy, but uh, we use Salesforce at Value yep. Builder, so I kind of I'm familiar with the platform. So okay, so so Salesforce got it. So then they have a couple dozen core uh, product lines. So they've got CRM, they've got uh, customer service. I think they do. Right. They, they've got a bunch of them, right? Yep. So you guys weren't one of the 25 core, if I understand correctly. So within that core, that those are, that's the foundation of Salesforce. Okay. There's another thing that's called the app exchange. The way I explain it to people, if you have an, if you have an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So within that iPhone, you can go to the app store. Yeah. You tell me there's 40,000, there's a hundred thousand apps that are Tons, out there. Yeah. Think of it the exact same way. Once you have Salesforce, there's an app exchange instead of the app store that you can go to and buy all of these different plugins. And, um, and so that's what we were a part of. And, and that is so it, but within that, there's so many that, you know, the long tail of that, they, they really, until you, you know, gain some value within that, within Salesforce, they don't really care about. But for the more high value uh, revenue generating and or influential, influential in the marketplace apps, those are the ones that they pay attention to. Got it. And so when you say you bought in, like when I think of the 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 app the, the iTunes store, what is it? The app store. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know that you do you actually buy into or to put your app on the or do you just apply? Well, you, or you have to submit. But the, the way you have to think about it is if you go to Google something or search on that on the on your iPhone for a game, you know, most popular game, the one that shows yeah. up at the top. Depending on how the algorithm is written, there's also an ad component to that where I can buy an ad ah, to push Matt and John's okay. app to the top. So when I go out there, you're going to get Cloud Craze app, not, you know. Ah, okay. App. So, there's, so, so there's, you guys, when you say bought in, you, you bumped up your yes. basic position. And in, that happens that. through an investment with Salesforce. So if you, okay. basically what they're doing is those, the, the, the rationalization they're using is that those top 25 uh, apps on the app exchange are generating a certain amount of revenue for them yeah. because you're paying them rent in order to use their platform for your product. Since we weren't generating enough revenue, we put, we made up the delta by just writing them a check. That then pulled us up, so we had visibility with the within the organization that basically the other you know uh, you know three thousand didn't have access to. How big a check are we talking? Like hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions? Like what what, what are we talking? It was close to seven figures on an annual basis. Okay. so it, it was a substantial you know, check. It's a big and it was. You know, in high, at the time, it was, you know, it was kind of, and I remember we were, we had just gone out, left the office and we were walking to, uh, you know, go get dinner or something. It was late at night. And then one of my partners is like, okay, so we've already written these checks. We're underneath the covers. We see what's going on. You know, we're like, holy cow, this is going to, this is an undertaking, uh, which I wasn't, ex I don't think any one of us knew like how big of an undertaking this is going to be. You're like, oh yeah, we'll buy the house. We'll flip it. It'll be no big deal. It'll be fun. You know, we'll just, We'll drive by, say hi to the guys while they're painting the outside of it. This was not the case. And then to kind of add injury to insult, oh, if we want to get to this next level, there's another check we need to write. And so it was just like, oh, my God. So, yeah, it was at the time, in hindsight, a phenomenal strategy. At the time, it was a, it was a big pill to swallow. Did Mark cough up money to invest in that seven-figure deal? Uh, Mark bet the original founder, uh, Bill, he was no. carrying some, sorry, Bill. So, yeah, yeah. So we actually were able to, uh, so we, when we did the acquisition, we raised money beyond the purchase price of the, uh, of the software. So we did have money sitting out there that we were able okay. to allocate and, you know, spread those payments out over a longer period of time. It basically just meant we needed to raise money in our first round quicker than, you know, we necessarily thought we were going to have to. Okay. Got it. So you're, you're, you've raised some money to, to build this. So one of the core, going back to the value drivers, go to market strategy, absolutely critical. Number two is to get into the Salesforce kind of ecosystem. Correct. Yep. Um, you know, part of me wearing my devil's advocate hat says, okay, but the, you know, doesn't that make you super dependent on Salesforce? At, in a well, way? well, and another hilarious part of this is in, if you go back um, early in this process, sales, there was an announcement that Microsoft had made an announcement to acquire sale, Salesforce. Mm. So we're sitting there thinking, oh my God, if that happens, like, like our value within this thing is got almost go, you know, it, it could take three years for the, all the dust to settle, you know, so it, you quickly realize there is an advantage in being a part of this 
phenomenal platform that's proven. But the other thing is you're really, so these were things, these were considerations that we didn't necessarily in our hypothesis take, we kind of took for granted like, oh yeah, well we can go or we'll just replatform it. And it's not that easy, you know, as with anything in tech, it's not that easy just to replatform it and put it on Microsoft's platform or whatever we would have to do to pivot away from Salesforce. So that was just another thing. That was another lesson learned in the middle of it that be very, and a lot of the, a lot of the investors, when we went to raise money are like, Oh God, I'm done with their ecosystem. Like it's all, you know, it's just difficult to deal with. And Hmm. you know, there's different drivers that aren't, aren't traditional to the marketplace, those kinds of things. So that was just, you know, part of the nuance of the, uh, of the interaction. So if you had it to do over again, would, would you, do the same thing and build it on the Salesforce platform. Well, the, the other, the, the, the prior owner had already made that decision and he was a huge Salesforce uh, services entity as well as this product. And with the way things worked out, absolutely. And you know, the, our employees got to go over to, I think it's rated every year by fortune as one of the best companies in the world to work for, not just within tech. So I think at the end of the day, the value that we were able to drive out of it at the end of it and the, the home that our employees have kind of walked into and, the, and they're just a phenomenal organization. I mean, they, you know, they're, if, if you're senior enough, they're continuing to give grants. They gave a big chunk of money beyond everything else that we, that was trickled out to our employees as an earnout. So I think they went above and beyond and it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's unlike anything you see here in the Midwest when I hear people going through acquisitions. It's like the stuff that happens out on the West Coast, um, you know, especially from these big tech companies is, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's spectacular. And there's difficulties in getting there. But, you know, if, if you can land at a company like Salesforce, it's about as good as it gets. And then another just interesting thing as we were going through this, at the very end, they're like, hey, um, what we want to do is pay everyone at 75% of their pay grade just so that we don't, you know, what we don't want to lose is start losing people because they're underpaid. So, you know, you go through and a bunch of people get a bump right through the acquisition. So there was just a lot of great things that they did. Sorry, you lost me there. I interpreted that as Salesforce wanted to pay your employees 75% of what they were making. No, sorry, the other way that if you were, if, if within, you know, say you just got promoted and you were, you know, if the pay grade is from, you know, a dollar to a dollar fifty. They're like, hey, instead of we want everyone at you know a dollar thirty-five, even if you were at a dollar ten, we're going to bump you to a dollar thirty-five. So across your entire organization, everyone needs to be at seventy-five percent of where their pay grade is, regardless of how long ago they got there, whatever it wow. is. Just so that they're, you know, I, I think attrition is one of the biggest fears in the in the in the tech business, specifically in the SaaS software business. I mean, you know, back in the day, you heard stories of Oracle flying over IBM with you know planes with you know. <laughs> we'll pay you twice your salary and Google going to, you know, pillage uh, sales or Facebook and, you know, all this crazy stuff that again, in Toronto and Chicago, we don't see that stuff, but uh, on the West coast, there's really interesting things that happen and it's, it, it, and it benefited our employees. A lot yeah, of it sounds like it. Less. Okay. So let's get back. So you're, you're changing the tires on the cars. It's rolling down the highway. Uh, the go-to-market strategy needs to be fixed. You made the strategic decision to be on the Salesforce platform, even though that, that came with some potential liabilities down the road. Yep. Any other major drivers of value that you think you, in yeah. retrospect, you did right? Yeah, we, we'd, I think we did a really good job on our um, customer care side of things where that wasn't really a defined group that he had had prior. And, and, and the, in, the, in the software business, that is... Once a product is sold, um, it's, there's a group of people that interface with that customer and find opportunities to upsell and cross-sell the product into other areas within their business. And quite frankly, if we didn't do that the way we did, I don't know that our, we would have gotten on that as high of a radar screen as we did, where Coca-Cola is the example. We were in one division. We were able to present to them globally, and it became a, it became a platform globally for Coca-Cola if we hadn't spent the, the money to invest in the right individuals, uh, John Coolanane is one of the guys' names that was running that group. He ran that deal. I mean, if, 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 if we didn't put that energy into the existing customer base that we had, again, I don't think we would have been able to do, you know, what we did. Um, so I think you that was that. Go ahead. That's helpful. You mentioned you raised money. Maybe talk a little bit about the, the, 
the, the investors along the way? Like who were, yeah. who was involved in supporting us? So the first group was a, um, were primarily people that we had worked with in the past, uh, in our other businesses. And, you know, a lot, I think the number we were at like 16 to 20 individuals who become millionaires out of that, uh, our sale to Accenture of acuity group. So we were able to rally that really within myself, my two partners and a handful of other individuals that put that money up. So we did that as kind of a friends and family. The <laughs> second one is where we were looking at more of an institutional raise. And we ended up uh, raising $20 million with a venture group out of uh, New York and, um, and, a, and a small chunk of that from Salesforce Ventures. So that was really the only money that we went through a process of raising. Got it. And let's get into the exit now, because now you've got a formal set of investors, not just friends and family, but now you've yep. got uh, people. What triggered you to want to sell this business? What was the triggering event? Well, it, I mean, it was really, it, it, it's, it's such a fascinating story. I think there's a movie in this thing all in all. So the, the first side of it is we were in the field we were running into Salesforce, their traditional line of people at accounts. And they had a product that they thought was pretty good as far as being able to beat cloud craze in a B2B environment. And some of these were, on, you know, one of them in particular was um, um, Adidas. They had a, so we ran into each other, but they ended up choosing us over Salesforce for their B2B so solution. So you're, oh, hold on a second. So, so, so Salesforce has got its own B2B well, solution, which is kind of competing with yours. Exactly. They acquired a company, again, another one of these crazy nuances. That was a sleepless night as well. They, acqu they acquired a entity that was a, B a traditional B2C solution. And we had actually implemented it as part of Acuity Group. They also said they had a B2B solution, which it wasn't really, um, you know, the more you got into it, you know, like they were fulfilling the, the foam things that you get when you buy a Starbucks coffee, like they could order right. that online. So they were like, oh, it's a B2B solution. Well, there's a lot more to a traditional B2B solution and all the functionality that we had and, and uh, you know, the customers that we had on our platform, we were able to beat pretty much anybody in the marketplace at that time. So, um, and now I so, totally so back to, yeah, yeah. Back to Adidas. Adidas is like, you got two suppliers. They chose you over them. Right. So that, so now Salesforce is very standoffish. No one's talking about, and it's almost kind of like a dating situation. You're like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, everyone likes everyone, but like, how are we going to, you know, go on that first date? Salesforce basically just called us in to San Francisco and said, we're going to get this executive team together. And we're going to go through a process of, you know, kind of really evaluating you guys, which they had done one other time when, when they did the initial investment, which is getting engineering involved and getting their executive team involved and really kind of doing a deep dive. But in our minds, we're like, I'm not, you know, the, I'm not putting the, the, the cart ahead of the horse. We've already went through this once. I know the prior owner had gone through it a couple of times as well. We didn't know what exactly was happening there. And, their big event is called Dreamforce, and this is 175,000 people uh, land in San Francisco, and it's everyone on their app exchange, all their customers, and it's just a phenomenal week-long event that's a massive, um, um, you know, business development opportunity, not only for Salesforce, but everybody in their ecosystem. They do a phenomenal job with it, and we had had an opportunity to have a meeting with uh, the gentleman that ran their M&A group, and he basically said to us, look at you guys are our number one priority um, of the acquisitions that we're looking at. And, um, you know, so we'd like to start some due diligence. And this is probably September uh, timeframe in uh, 2015. And he turns around and, you know, that the meeting was literally 20 minutes. That was the discussion. And then we started down this process. The interesting thing was, so then they kind of, they, they, it's not like uh, in other businesses, it's almost exactly like selling a house where it's almost an open auction kind of a situation where everyone puts in a number, you, you, you pitch your, your product or service and then people come back with a number. This is kind of Salesforce saying, hey, here's the number. The interesting part of that was that our institutional investor that we had that was in New York said, I don't like that value. In fact, I'll go ahead and give you more than that value and I want you guys to stay on. Now, I, I, when we sold Acuity Group, I wasn't 
um, anticipating having to be a full-time operator in a business to the level of stress. I mean, we were losing at one point, like a million for a month. Those were our- At, you know, at cloud craze? At cloud craze, yeah. So oh, we were geez. investing a ton of money in this thing. And I was like, okay, that York weight is going to get lifted off my chest. So quite frankly, that's not the path I want to go down. But listen, if you, and, the, and my, both of my partners are like, hey, look, at, we own a ton of equity in this business. They're offering us a, um, a, an incredible return on our investment, incredible return on our investment. I don't want to go down that path. So they're like, okay, forget you three. We're going to interview the group below you. This is our guys in the private equity guys in New York. And the guys below us come back. They all have their interviews and they're like, yeah, we want to go with Salesforce. We don't want to go with you guys. So then they turn around and Who's say, they? they, the private equity guys in New York, they turn around. This is on a Friday night, seven o'clock at night. They get their head attorney on and I've never, I, uh, Kevin Young is our attorney. He's worked with us through all three of our transactions and probably eight deals we've done all together. Phenomenal. This guy kind of just bulldozed right through the whole thing. And, and it was, he used his typical New York, just brass to run this whole thing and say, basically bottom line, you guys are breaking your fiduciary responsibility and we'll see you on court in Delaware on Monday morning at eight o'clock. And I'm like, Oh my God. So then Salesforce says deals off. <laughs> I'm like, what? How did I go from not having to do anything again? To now I'm in a courtroom in Delaware. Like what? So, <laughs> so let me unpack this. So when you say, so the fiduciary duty is as a, sh as a CEO or, or an, an executive in a company, you are, yeah. you are required to do what is right for the shareholders. Is that correct? correct? Yeah, exactly. And in this case, the shareholder, this institutional investor in New York correct. is saying, hold on a second, we're giving you a higher value right. than Salesforce. And therefore right. you are under, you're not, you're not living up to your fiduciary duty. Right. And I the see. thing is, it, the thing to us was the minute you're not in favor with Salesforce, I mean, I've seen it and it, 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 there it's brutal. You don't want yeah. You have to deal with their entire, you have to deal with their engineering teams all the time. You have to work with their sales teams in the field because we're integrated with their solutions, all this stuff. If that all gets blown up, cause you're going to, you know, kind of take your, um, you know, play the game that they wanted to play. I, I was like, look at, I, I, I want my, I want the value I have created and I want to, I want to realize that right now. I don't want to wait maybe it'll be more in the future or let's bet on, you know, we've all been through enough things in the last, you know, from 99 to, you know, 08 to 2001. I mean, you just name, there's enough every three to five years. I'm like, we've had a great run here. This has been, this will be 36 months and we can unplug this thing. I don't want to play that game. So then, so, the, so the, before we go further, so the institutional investor is saying, um, we're going to give you a higher valuation. Correct. So, so we're going to get, when they say we're going to give you, we're going to write a check to Matt, your two co-founders and some of the other executive team, right. which is going to put money in your jeans. Correct. But, but we're also going to ask you to stick around. So there's going to be some holdbacks or whatever. And so we said collectively between myself, Chris and Paul, which we were the majority of the, the, the folks um, with equity in the business. We said, you know, I don't want to do that because Salesforce is saying, there's no earnout for you guys. We're just going to give you that money and we're going to, you know, the, this is going to be the transaction value for the people that stay. We will have carrots that we're going to put in front of you. But um, you know, with the, with, the, um, with the firm that we were dealing with in New York, that wasn't the case. And so for us, we're like, no. And then they're like, okay, let's go to the tier below you bunch of very competent individuals. And they said no as well. Cause they're like, our life's going to be hell. I'm going to sure. have to try and deal with this company that we said no to and they say in no uncertain terms, listen, I'm not coming back twice. I'm only asking once. So, and, and you know, and they, they, they were doing 15, 20 transactions a, a year. And I'm like, I believe them. <laughs> Their hands are full. They're, they, they have so many different products they're dealing with. I'm like, look, at, I want to take this, um, you know, this is the deal I want to get done. So, so what'd you do? So then, <laughs> so then what, so we go through this whole thing. And this is the best, because I, I haven't said any names, that there's a component to this. So the attorney that was on the call, I mean, to say, and I won't even use a swear word, it, uh, it was on the verge of, um, you know, disrespectful. I'll just use that as the term. There so were a lot of was, expletives. Yes. And it was one of those things where I, I, you know, I've been in sales most of my career. I've been in a lot of, you know, big business meetings. We were publicly traded. I've seen people get excited. This guy was over the top. 
So this is the that, this is the lawyer is for the for the for the, PE the private equity guys out yeah, in New yeah. York. So yeah, <laughs> the, the best part of this story is when Lori Laughlin and the whole thing broke about the college scandal. Yeah, he was one of the number one guys. So he got he was the top <laughs> attorney at that firm. So he's no longer at that firm, and his license <laughs> got taken away. And I'm like, karma is a bitch. <laughs> It was hilarious. Oh, okay, so these are these are. Okay. This is just one of the understories in the movies. I'm sure. To, yeah, yeah. That's just one of them. Which I which I could. It, we were literally every time the news came. And he was on the front of the Wall Street Journal. Every time that came out, we're <laughs> texting it to our attorney, like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. to a better guy. So then, <laughs> so then we go through all of this legal uh, stuff of going out, and the and the bottom line is, you know, Salesforce is like, hey, you guys got to get this this uh, legal action out of the way or we're going to move on to another transaction, you know, we have yeah. a team or so, you know, we basically got to the point where we, we just continue to move down the due diligence process. We said, we'll get our, we'll get the, the PE to, to let this thing go. And as we got farther down the road and the, and the, the guy that's running the shop over there kind of was came to the conclusion, you know, he's just like, you know, you guys are being pansies about this. Like you, the underlings, I can get you to this much more value and, you know, you're leaving money on the table. We'll hire anybody you guys want. And I, everyone was like, look at, this is a perfect exit. We get to go into a beautiful organization that it treats its employees the way it is. You're setting up a contentious relationship from minute one, and it's just going to be hell for everybody. So that took a while. We had to jump through a lot of hoops. We had to spend a lot of money on the legal side of it. But then that ended up transitioning into we were able to finally get the, uh, come to an agreement with Salesforce. What was the difference in value on a percentage basis between what was Salesforce was offering and what the PE you know, guys were offering? Whatever, whichever number that they were at, he would just throw like 15 million on top of it. You know, they're playing, they're, I mean, they're playing with, he has $13 billion in his organization. I mean, we're dealing with eight, uh, you know, an eight figure transaction, low eight figure transaction. He, he, you know, to him, $13 billion, him throwing, t- you know, he has so much cash. I think with all these private equity guys right now, they have nothing but cash. So he's like, I don't even care. I'll, I'll overpay for you guys. You know, yeah, he probably would have gone $50 million over just because I now have something that I think can be worth a ton of value and how things played out. Maybe it would have been a better transaction, but you know, I've had a great two years of, you know, enjoying time with my family, relaxing, working on other things. And I'm like, I'm glad I didn't have to push it a rock up a hill at, you know, for the, for the guys in New York. Did you ever get a sense of what his end game was? Because you were so deeply entrenched with Salesforce that had you taken the, the PE yeah. deal, um, like, did he think that he was just going to grow it for another few years and then go back to Salesforce again? Or Yes, that's exactly. He goes, they don't care. And, you know, and it, it, to me, it was just like the ultimate ego game. But you're just playing with too much of my money. You can be ego with your own money, but it's like, give me my money. Give me the value that we created. And then you can go do what you want after that. But it's you know, I think these private equity guys, you know, they'd rather run it to zero or have it be, you know, a billion five to $5 billion number versus, you know, the, the figure that I threw around earlier, which, you know, if you're an individual investor and it's your equity, I mean, it's, it's a game changer, you know, all oh, the way sure. around for the employees that stayed on and for the investors, even that we had, you know, significant investors um, that weren't in the business that are, you know, relationships that us had, we had individually and, um, you know, they've come back and just said, hey, that was game changing. You know, I wrote a check and I got, you know, a phenomenal amount back over and above that. And, um, you know, that, what that's kind what of you re- look at. Go ahead. What kind of return would those guys, the, the, the friends and family, like if they had given you $100 in that round, yeah. like what would you have been returning to them at the um, end? It would have been probably 1500 Wow. Yeah. It was a, it was a good deal. I mean, we got it. I, you know, the multiples I threw out were on the low end of what we ended up walking away with. And, you know, we, we took it from under two to 18. So that'll just give you, 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 I'll let you run the math on that. So it's, you know, but yeah, it's a game changer. You know, it's just, and the other, you know, on the services world, it takes so long to get you to a two, you know, a two something times revenue where, you know, in the software, it's, you know, 12, 10 to 12 is on the low end. You know, you hear stuff in the 20s, 30s times revenue. I mean, it's crazy. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, A, being the SaaS business, and then B, 
be in a, you know, just, you, you need to have some, some foresight into where things are going to be into the future. You know, who would have thought that, you know, look at Zoom. I mean, that thing's gone through the roof. They just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, I don't know, you know, cause to me, teleconference is teleconference. I mean, Adobe has one, Cisco has one, like what the hell's the difference with Zoom versus any of these other ones, but they're the new SaaS model that has all the functions and features and it. I don't know, maybe the name's easier to remember than it is some of the other guys. I don't, but somehow they've become this, you know, darling of the stock market and the sure. product because of the pandemic has been, you know, every, it's every, you know, my, my mom and dad know who Zoom is. So it's, you know, that's just, tells you. so you just got to kind of find that right place and right time. What was your plan B if, if Salesforce had gone through due diligence and for whatever reason pulled out? Yeah. What was the plan B? You know, we had been talking, so one of them would have been uh, to continue to work with the private equity guys that we were yeah. working with. And then we were going to have to make a, a platform decision. If Salesforce wasn't ultimately going to be the platform, then we were going to have to look at something else. The problem is when you go down that path is that Salesforce isn't just an application. It's really a platform within a business. So they're running their CRM off of it. They're running, all, you know, their, their business to consumer, their B2B site, their B2C, everything is being run off of this platform. So if you, and then there are, you know, there are Salesforce shop for you to go and say, Hey, I'm going to, I have a new, it's, I'm going to take that one component of your entire platform and say, I'm going to run that on Microsoft. They're going to be like, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I bought into this platform. So it would have been, uh, incredibly painful. It would have taken a much longer period of time. It almost would have been like starting over. And that was the other reason that we, that we were like, look at, even though you don't, you, as a private equity firm, you're not getting the return you were expecting. Us as investors were getting the, more than the return, especially when you take into consideration, we had it for 36 months. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the, you, you know, I don't want, you know, I already did a 12 year run. I've, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to do that again at this stage in my life. You know what I mean? So it's like the, even if the value is not, if we're not pulling every ounce of blood of the turnip, it's the fact that it took 36 months. It's going to make it that much, you know, better for, for all of us. What was the most memorable conversation you had with someone who was in the friends and family round who invested a hundred and you were able to give them 1500 back? Uh, for sure, you know, I told you the number we were losing a month and, um, you know, we went to raise money. We went out, to, uh, you know, uh, Sand Hill Road in, in uh, Silicon Valley. And then we went to Boston and New York, talked to like 30 different companies, taking red eye flights back and forth. We're like, we're just going to do a quick road show. No, no brainer. Crickets. <laughs> 10 days later, crickets. <sighs> Little, you know, stuff started flowing in, but. You know, we hadn't raised enough money and the expectation was that, you know, any other business we went through, the minute we started a process, we were able to get interest really quickly where software is different than services. And, you know, even within the private equity or, or the venture arms of businesses, they look at each of them so differently. And, and then the platform that you're on and then what's the exit going to be and all these different things come into play. So in the middle of that, we, we go through this process, but we're, cu we're cutting it close. Like we're going to be out of money in January and the road show was in, you know, right after Thanksgiving or, or it was actually, uh, uh, it was probably after Labor Day. And everyone's like, ah, it's going to take two to three months. We're thinking, well, we have our products unbelievable. It won't take that long. We'll probably be done by Thanksgiving. Well, we're running up into the holidays and I had to call the individual um, who I was referencing, who he was our largest investor and tell him. Which that, individual was that? Uh, John Culture is the individual's name. It's a, a, okay. a good friend of mine. He he's works at our, um, uh, William Blair is the company that he works for and they helped us in some of our early deals and he does our wealth management and a good friend of mine. He, I just said, I go, get your checkbook out because, um, you know, we're not going to be able to make payroll of what we got in the bank. So, we're going to have to start writing checks to cover payroll. And so that, you know, and him is like an investor. He's like, what the hell is that? Like, I you can't make payroll. Like, what are you talking about? Like, who, who even says that out loud? I'm like, well, that's the situation we're in. Like, unless we can close something quickly here, um, you know, we're all going to have to start writing checks. And so that, that to me was, because he brings this up, you know, it's three years ago and he still brings it up. He's like, I'll never forget that call you, you gave to me about, like, you're an investor now. <laughs> so was he an investor going into the conversation that you had with him? 
He, yeah, he, from early days, I mean, he was, uh, he, you know, he goes back, he, was my, he lived across the hall from me when I was in college. So we've known each other our whole lives. So when we were starting any of these ventures, we've invested in different things with him and he's invested in different. So when we started this, he goes, whatever you guys are putting in, I'll put in half of what you're putting in. So then he was a, you know, it was seven sizable. That's right. So yeah, he was writing a big check. Yeah. So, um, I'm like, well, by having a lot of equity, that means you're going to have to come up with a good chunk of the uh, <laughs> payroll is going to come out of, uh, you know, your own, per- the, uh, the, your own personal uh, checking account. So, so describe that was the, definitely the most memorable one by far. So describe the, the conversation with John, your college buddy, when y- you made good on it. I, I mean, to this day, he has said, he's like, his, his wife's name is Victoria. And he's like, you know, you guys have changed our lives. You know, he's like things, I, I just, I have a cushion that I would not have been able to put together if I hadn't gone through that transaction. So, you know, that's definitely the more fulfilling part of, you know, the grind that it is and that everybody that's listening to this, I mean, I know through most of my career, every crack in my ceiling, I can tell you exactly where it is when I'm laying down and, you know, <laughs> I, I get it. Where is this customer going to work or put a proposal together? Is this thing going to close? I mean, all those things that run through your mind, it's when you get on the backside and you can look back and you have people that trusted in you and, and you were able to make good on the promise. I think that goes, you know, that just goes a long way. That uh, sure does. Listen, I'm so grateful for you sharing the story. I think there's so many lessons embedded. Where can people find you if they wanted to reach out and say hi in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, absolutely, uh, John. So it's uh, Action Partners is the entity. A K T I O N uh, Partners dot com is the the group that myself and uh, Chris Dalton and Paul Weinwuth are are working on. So all of our contact information is out there. And you're willing to be, you know, the 60 hour guy again, right? Like come right into the business. <laughs> you know, listen, I, made, I made a guy, we made a guy in one of our deals. He was an individual. He walked away with $70 million after a transaction we did. We didn't walk away with that kind of money. I want to be that guy now. I yeah, wanna, sounds I great. Wanna, I don't want to be the guy that has to do the hard work. I want to be the guy yeah. that has the money and puts it in and just gets a big check back at the end. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing this story and uh, we'll put that in the show notes, Matt. Thanks for doing I appreciate this. it. Yeah, John, thank you. Take care. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.